Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and Charlie is not here today, but I'm being joined by a very special guest, Mr. Robbie, the Fire Bernstein comedian, host of Run Your Mouth and co-host of Part of the Problem with Dave Smith. Robbie, how's it going today? Yeah, fuck that Charlie guy. Doesn't want to show up because I'm on the show. I never liked him anyways. I know. He was like, yeah, I freaking hate that guy. I would listen to Dave Smith's podcast if it weren't for Robbie chiming in every once in a while. So Yeah, me and Charlie weren't going to get along anyway, so we're better off without him. That is most likely the case. So, you know, you've got a show coming up here uh, around Nashville, coming up here, uh, I think, next weekend. And I think I'm going to get a couple friends and go watch that. Oh, yeah, dude. Here's what you should do. Before you come down, uh, hook up one of those uh, bikes with the dumb sluts on it because they get on. They're not actually biking, but they like to drink around the city and play music. And as long as you play music loudly enough, they won't even realize that they're being trailed to our show. <laughs> so, uh, and then I can start broadcasting the fact that we will have trapped dumb sluts into coming out. So anyone showing up will get their dick sucked. That is a great plan right there. And I recommend it to anyone who wants to try that. Um, you know, I, I might not personally do that. I'll have to talk to my wife first about the dumb sluts and whether or not we're no, going to get it. Over. If you tell her you're going out okay. fishing for sluts and that Robbie, the fire had a winning strategy yeah. for how to do it which is that you just hook up one of those things to your trailer. You get one of those good <laughs> metal hooks that they have on the back of tow trucks yeah. and you just trail them right out of town to, to Fayetteville. It okay. works. Yeah. No, I mean, Robbie said that I could do it. They shut up. Yeah, it's fine. That's a hall pass. <laughs> so tell me, listen, you're a comedian and we don't have a lot of, normally we just talk about all this boring political stuff and all the terrible news, the awful things that are going on on a daily basis. I want to know, like, do you find it hard to be funny? Like over the last couple of years with COVID and wars and protests and mass shootings, we've been, we've been surrounded by so much stupidity over the last couple of years. You know, is it tough to be funny in a time with so much stupid? <laughs> I find, well, to me, it's the opposite. It's like, if you can find, I, I find my process is if I can label something as stupid, then it's like, if I can figure out why it's dumb, I can usually come up with the joke about it. <laughs> Uh, so for anyone listening to this, I recommend go check out the run your mouth end of your misinformation spectacular. Uh, but for me, COVID has been a goldmine. I've done, I put out at least 20 minutes of COVID material on that, which, uh, sadly still holds up. And as maybe I'm hoping that as people wake up to just how much they were lied to, they can watch that back and realize how dumb they were forever thinking the government was right about it. Uh, and I probably have a new 10 minutes of COVID material that I'm excited about. So the, the answer is, I'm sorry that everyone had to go through COVID, but at least I was able to get good jokes out of it. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, it all works out as even. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was worth it then for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for everyone else, I'm sorry. And for those that got vaccinated and no longer have sperm or working vaginas, <laughs> I understand why you're upset by this. And maybe every month now your period goes an extra day and it's like, you know, a heavier flow. Uh, which is burning some. I understand having to change your tampon two to every four hours as opposed to just every six and then still not being comfortable wearing white pants even when you're going to a summer party. I understand how that kind of ruined your life. But for me, I was able to get a couple extra jokes out of it. So all evil in, in my book. And I never liked white pants anyway, so I don't mind having a heavier period. <laughs> tough times, real tough times everyone's going through. I got a lot of questions about comedy and then I actually want to get into some politics and I guess we can mix them both together. That's fine. I guess I want to know how you got 
how you got your start. Why, why politics and comedy? Which one comes first? Did one lead to the other? How did this all happen? Uh, great questions. Let, let's start with comedy. I started doing stand-up comedy because uh, I just say it wasn't really stand-up that I was interested in. But in high school, like I used to watch funny movies. I used to listen to a lot of radio. I was really interested in, I guess, working in entertainment, specifically the comedy route. Uh, but I grew up very like, uh, like Jewy, you know, real Jewy. I was going to synagogue. And so more than making people laugh, I really liked money. I was like, I'm going to be a Wall Street guy. I'm going to be a real good Jew. I'm going to, I'm going to get out there on Wall Street. I'm going to trade the stocks, buy them low, sell them high, all sorts of fun shit. Right. But then I went to college and realized I'm not a good student and I, this isn't for me. Uh, and I was more interested, honestly, in radio or television writing than stand up. But what was cool about stand up was you could just show up to an open mic and do it. And then there were people there that were even more pathetic than you were. So you're like, I'm not out of place here. These people are, I'm a little pathetic. These people are super pathetic. Uh, so I just started doing open mic and really fell in love with stand-up comedy. And now I'm like 11 years in. I just, uh, the power of persistence just did not quit. So did, you know, when you decided not to go into finance and all that, did you lose your Jew card or or did like your family take your arm, your armband back or what happened? Not quite. It was more like I was very uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish. And then so at 24, when I realized the finance thing's not going to work out, I realized, you know, these Jew wives are expensive. You, you got to make a dowry. You got to make down payments. You got to have a job secured. You, you got to be able to pay for those private schools. It's a lifestyle. So when I looked at it, and I was failing out. I, I, f I flunked out a Jew lifestyle because I wasn't able to afford it. So I was like, all right, that's it. You know, I'm going to go get laid. And so then, you know, I found myself a uh, ex stripper, a girlfriend with two kids. I hopped right into the deep waters in terms of uh, in terms of getting laid. That was a good time till it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's the way I think most relationships go. So, yeah, I, fa I failed out of Jew world because it was too expensive for my dumb brain. And so I just started doing stand up comedy and uh, getting laid once or twice every other year. That's good. <laughs> it was definitely <laughs> worth trading my faith for. <laughs> that's that's good. I'm finding that this all work. This is all working out for you really well. COVID, yeah. you know, trading in your faith, all these things. Uh, everything's really coming together for you right now. Now you're you're co-hosting part of the problem with Dave Smith. And so what I was wondering is like, what's something about Dave Smith that no one else knows that you told him you would keep a secret forever that we could talk about right now? I don't think, uh, you know, we, we don't we don't sit around late at night and have sleepovers like that mm, where okay. <laughs> we're sharing those uh, those secrets. So Hang on, I was trying sadly, to get the I don't I, I don't think I have anything uh, too great, except I have heard that uh, late at night. Sometimes what he'll do is he'll block out all of his facial hair and pretend like he's Hitler, like he'll just keep that little <laughs> part. And and he likes to do that also when he's fornicating with his wife. Um, I don't like to judge other people's habits, so I'm not sure why a Jewish guy who may or may not run for president also likes to pretend like he's a ruthless dictator that killed a lot of Jews. But, you know, if that if that helps him wake up in the morning refreshed and ready to do a better podcast episode, I'm not judging. No, no reason to judge on that. I don't find anything wrong with that at all. But what I do want to know real quick is what. OK, who's the who's the best comedian that's out there right now, other than you and other than Dave Smith? Other, the the like, best guy working? Yeah, who's... Well, I, here's the thing. I got to be honest. I don't watch all that much stand-up. Um, so I, I, I'd love to just plug the guys I'm working with, but Louis C.K. is making a comeback. Uh, and what I watched of his last special was excellent. Uh, I recently got to see Doug Stanhope live, and Doug Stanhope's my personal favorite comedian. When I saw him live in New York City... 
he had just put out an, an hour. And so he was like kind of working with an hour and a half. But dude, he did a bit on COVID, which was the opposite take of mine, which was kind of it wasn't pro vaccine. It was just shut up about having opinions because you haven't done research. And like you're being a pussy if you're listening to laws and complaining about them. So it, it started off because like he almost pranked me where I was like, oh, my God, did Doug go woke? And then it, it turned really hilarious. So I would say the best working comics like of uh, is, is probably those two guys and they're legends of the sport. Uh, some of the guys in my little sphere that you, people are probably less aware of, but I think are unbelievably funny is the comics that I work with on the road. Just did shows with Kyle Ruff. Uh, he's still, he's probably only five years in, but holy shit, that guy slams in front of my audience and he's doing edgy political stuff. BK Chris is my absolute favorite to do a live podcast with. He's really funny. Annie Melfinari, unbelievably funny. And then my good friend menu and heart who I've, uh, did Rob's newsroom with and other stuff. And then one more is Ilya Laskin, who I put together my misinformation spectacular with. So sometimes I like, I like the underdogs, the unknowns and the guys who are just doing edgier shit. And that seems to now be lucky for me, kind of the roster of guys that I'm able to bring with uh, on the road. I'm taking all these names down because I'm really bad at finding new comedians. I stick with like the same three I've been listening to for. Yeah, who are your guys? And if they don't, my my absolute favorite is Norm Macdonald, and I don't think he's putting oh, out anything new anytime yeah. soon. <laughs> um, so that, but that's like my absolute favorite. That's so, a good favorite. I respect that call. Who else is on the list? Who are the other two? Anthony Jesselnick. Okay. Is, uh, I love Shakespeare after that. He fell off a cliff to me, but Shakespeare, Shakespeare's, uh, Shakespeare's unbelievable my favorite album. One. Shakespeare's yeah. my favorite one. That's that's basically the one that I'll listen to. And, um, well, Mitch Hedberg was uh, was one of my favorites, probably the first one that I really ever got got into. So, What's your favorite Mitch Hedberg joke? I'll tell you mine after you, but you go first. Oh, man. Well, the one about the escalator is pretty good. Um, the escalator can never, can never break. It just uh, becomes stairs. You know, right? Um, I, escalator temporarily stairs. You know, we we apologize for the convenience. <laughs> we apologize for the fact that you can still get up there. You know, that's a, <laughs> that's about the one that sticks out to me. But there's tons of them. My all-time favorite is you got one where uh, you know what? Now that you say that one, this one's actually a similar joke. But he goes, "I was at the uh, I was at a casino. I was standing by the fire exit. Guy walks up to me. He goes, excuse me, sir, you're blocking the fire exit.'" And uh, technically anything but the legs isn't blocking the fire exit. Like as if there's a fire, I'm not going to get up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> what I loved about him was you would see him do a show and he literally have like a crumpled up piece of paper that he was like reading just these random jokes off of. I don't know if he was actually stoned out of his mind or if it was just an act. I, I guess maybe he was stoned out of his mind. No, no clue. But yeah, that was like the first guy. And that kind of set the kind of stuff I was looking for until I got the Anthony Jesselneck. Then it just got real dark real quick. Sure. It's sure. Sure. The more, I could see that the more death, the better, I guess. And I guess <laughs> same thing with Norm McDonald, just a lot of jokes about death and, and murder. <laughs> What's so I love funny Norm. about that? Norm, Nor Norm's in my top five for sure. He's a, he's a big influence. So, uh, okay. Well, what about yours for like all, all time then not current people? Uh, my all time list doesn't look that different than the current list because, uh, Doug Stanhope's number one. Louis C.K. is going to come in as number two. Greg Giraldo, number three. Norm McDumble, Norm McDonald, number four. Uh, Nick DiPaolo, number five. And then sixth spot would have to go to Patrice O'Neill. Seventh spot would probably go to uh, probably Attell. And then from there, there's a bunch of people that I think are really great. But, like, I, I don't even know who would compete for those last three on the top ten list. Now, why didn't you name, like, any women at the very top of it? 
Um, they're not funny. I think that's the answer. <laughs> All right. So uh, I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure you said that. But is there? Yeah, some... you wanted to get me on the record. Now there's some funny women out there. Um, but there there aren't like I'll tell you the two that I think are really funny around New York City. Just great joke writers are uh, Bonnie McFarlane and Adrian Appalucci. Just unbelievable joke writers. But uh, to me, there aren't like there aren't really too many female comics that got the legacy of like a prior a Doug Stanhope, a Louis C.K. A car, you know what I mean? There aren't like I know that they got those names of people that they say are in that category. Most notable would probably be uh, who was the one who got all the work done? Who was then yeah. like later on the red carpet? Uh, I have no, I have no clue. I'm extremely sexist when it comes to comedy. Yeah, I, I can guess. respect that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely no clue at all. Who's the one that like did the cut cut off like Trump head thing? You know, oh, I mean, were you even going to call her a comedian? The redhead. I think that was a job description that she had at one point in time. Yeah, Kat, Kathy Griffin. There you and go. And she won yeah. like she won the Grammy like five or six years in a row. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's not for us. That's for gays and lesbians and people, <laughs> other people with no sense of humor. Okay, so uh, I think we've established women are not funny. Uh, we know that. I think uh, everyone in the group that we were, t I was trying to figure out all their favorites and I recognize no one named women either. So, you know, that's just, it is what it is. But it's important to have women in comedy because who else are you going to sexually harass in the green room? Well, I yeah, mean, otherwise yeah. it just becomes like a prison environment and, you know, who, who wants to rape other men? You got to get in shape for that. And you need people to open. Like someone has to bomb before the man goes on. So, that's true too. Yeah. You know, let, let people know. <laughs> What about uh, how much of your act is is everything political or do you go do you branch out past politics at all? No, I branch out of politics quite a bit. I would say it's uh, at the moment, the current ratio. 50 50, I would say I'm, I'm talking about dating and I'm talking about I got I got non-political topics in there, but over because I spent so much time doing uh, my daily briefings or run your mouth, I would say kind of more my specialty is, uh, is also a lot of my political stuff is kind of almost apolitical in that, like, if it's not funny, I'm not doing it for stand up. Um, so like, I'm definitely looking for the joke and sometimes, sometimes I'll even tell a joke that's counter to my political opinion just because it's funny. You know what I mean? So it's like, even though some of my jokes are in the political sphere, I'm not always like, it's not a gender angle first per se. It's more, it's more funny first, but I, at least half my act is just absolute fucking nonsense. And a lot of my political stuff just boils down to dick jokes. <laughs> I just heard something you were doing and you, you were talking about Russia a lot and now you're blending this in with some comedy, but then you also got into something that we've been talking about a bunch when it comes to Russia. And I guess I'll ask you something political now, but, um, have our sanctions had the desired effect on quelling Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What do you think about that? I want to thank the sponsor for today's show. That's our friend Mikkel Thurup of the Expat Money Show. You've probably heard him on this podcast before. That's back on episode 330. And if you're one of the many people who are considering exploring life in another country, you absolutely have to subscribe to the Expat Money Show. Whether it's foreign residencies, second passports, asset protection, or protecting your money from the tyranny of taxation, there is no better resource than the Expat Money Show. I mean that. Seriously. This is the guy to go to. Mikkel has spent over 20 years traveling the world, visiting more than 100 countries, while living in nine different countries over that time. 
He can help you legally eliminate your tax bill and travel the world in the process. So subscribe to the Expat Money Show today, available on all the podcast apps, YouTube, or you can find the episodes over at expatmoneyshow.com. And by the way, he's got a great online summit coming up that I'm going to put the link in the show notes to as well. A bunch of different experts who are going to show you all the benefits of living the expat lifestyle, the best ways to do it, how we can actually live a free libertarian lifestyle. That does sound pretty good. So go over to the expatmoneyshow.com and find all the links in the show notes. No, I mean, not, okay. Not only have they not had the desired effect, if you were to actually sit down with a Biden in a room and go, so what exactly, what, what exactly are you hoping for here? Like what, what is, what is the scenario you think you're going to accomplish? And they basically think that Putin's just going to go, you know what, guys, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have invaded. I am a war criminal. So I'm going to hand over the country to a new person that you guys can choose. And why don't I come to America and you can just put me in jail because I'm now a war criminal. They haven't really given him much of an out in terms of declaring him a war. Like they're just not really creating an environment that we can easily de-escalate. This started with when Biden was saying we refuse to say that Ukraine will not be admitted into uh, NATO, which was firstly an obvious threat to Russia. And secondly, what did it accomplish for us? Why was that such an important red line for the United States of America to take to say that NATO, that Russia can't tell us that NATO can't be, I mean, that Ukraine can't be in NATO. So we really kind of pushed Putin into this. I, I think anyone, I mean, there's plenty of policy experts, including the ones that I would have disagreed with on everything. Guys like Henry Kissinger, like you've got uh, one of the most no, no, more notable political scientists out of, uh, out of the University of Chicago. Like you've got a bunch of like big mainstream media people or typically mainstream uh, government people that will tell you that this has been a mistake and that we should be working towards de-escalating. Uh, so just off the bat. I don't know what Biden thinks he can possibly accomplish from this. Uh, he's he's not winning, and this is a losing strategy. In terms of specifically putting sanctions, so the, the sanctions, I mean, at best, what are you going to do? You're going to punish the Russian people? It's not going to affect Putin. Putin, on paper, the Saudi Arabian family is the most wealthy in the entire world. Behind closed doors, Putin's probably worth like more than anyone. He might even be as much as a trillion dollars. No one's wealthier. So you're not, you're not going to affect Putin. Chances are Putin's going to walk out ahead of this because he's going to take over regions of the Ukraine with enough resources like in the ground, uh, such as like lithium or other precious metals that he's going to cover his war costs. But also, uh, you've just if you wanted to do anything, it might have been to align with Russia to try and oppose China or at least maybe better befriend China. But what you certainly want, didn't want to do was create a new trading block between Russia, India, and China that is anti the U.S. and is trading in other currencies. Uh, and it looks like if you really understand the power of the United States government, it's in the fact that we're the world reserve currency of the world. If we have a product that's United States dollar and that essentially to a point, there's nearly infinite demand for our debt, which allows us to have in low interest rates and also print a lot of money, fund a lot of shit, and kind of export a lot of our inflation. To sum all this up, to button it up and give you a simple answer to your question where the sanctions a good idea, uh, thus far, we haven't, we're, we're not affecting Putin. Uh, we've drawn them closer to Russia and China. 
We've also probably forged alliances between them and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the world needs Russian oil, uh, natural gas to be more exact. It needs Russian wheat. They'll continue to transact in it. And this might be catastrophic for us if we see more of a movement away from the dollar. Keyword there, I'm being sensational. I said might be. News organizations like to do that all the time. I'm just letting you know a risk that exists. Am I saying that everyone will be leaving the United States dollar? No. Am I saying that there's no upside here and potentially a tremendous risk that Biden put on our plate? Yes. Yeah. From what I can tell, you know, they're still selling whatever they need to sell. I mean, when you have India and China still willing to buy everything, then uh, I don't, I'm not sure how affected they've been. The ruble is actually, uh, the value has gone up. Yeah, because <laughs> they've uh, they've tied it to gold. Yeah. They've done a good job here where essentially they've uh, forced contracts to be paid in the ruble. So like they've kind of created a fixed demand for their currency. And then they've also tied it in with gold. And now they're creating like the secondary processing system outside of SWIFT, which is BRICS. I don't know if all this was too long-winded for you, but that that's the basic scoop. No, that's the exact answer I was looking for right there. Hell yeah. Now, one of the go one thing you started with. So, you know the war crimes thing you were talking about. Is it not weird that there's like this special designation, you know, we're a couple months into the war a little, a little while back and people are talking about, "Oh, we think Putin might have committed war crimes in Ukraine." And what I'm trying to figure out is uh, is like dropping a bomb on a bunch of different places not a war crime already, like the but there's different crimes inside of war. And so when you're fighting a war and you're dropping bombs on someone else's country, there's this other rule of law that you're supposed to follow and you're only allowed to kill certain people, but not other people. I find it really weird, this whole war crime. Yeah. Thing. Well, there's a game in ship to war. Yeah. Where we try and say we're all going to agree because uh, I mean, war is essentially a game of inflicting as much pain as you can upon another country so that they quit. Uh, but we try and say, all right, the, the, the soldiers, the men, they're allowed to be sacrificed, but we're both going to agree we're not going to kill each other's women and children, and we're not going to bomb the hospitals. Uh, except the United States government, sometimes we don't declare war and we drone people, and then we're not all that good about hitting targets that aren't kids. Or sometimes if wars get deadly enough and we don't think we can win them, we'll just nuke a city. Uh, so I, I'm not advoca advocating for war crimes, uh, but there certainly is a... Uh, hey, we're all going to agree to these rules. And then the United States sometimes going, well, we're not going to play by them. So, you know, the horror that I'll state a little differently. You know, you can have two people from the other side of the room claiming that they have the moral high ground and shouting at each other. Or you can have kind of both sides accepting reality and going, neither one of us is good or moral, but maybe we can kind of forge a path here where at least we're not slaughtering or creating this much pain on one another. And so in this case, de-escalating would require accepting that Putin's a like, don't even call him a legitimate leader. You want to call him a legitimate dictator. That's fine too. But you're going to have to sit down at a table with him if you want to de-escalate. And so calling him a war criminal doesn't help you de-escalate. So I, I, it's not an endorsement of anything that's happening. I'm just saying that if you want to de-escalate, this is not the way to do it. How's it all going to end up, you think? I mean, Putin's just going to give up and go home and everything's going to go back no, to normal, No, that's right? not. That, that's, that, that's not happening. I think the... Well, I, here, here's the issue is that since we change our powers here every four years, I mean, Iran, the Iran nuclear agreement is not a bad example. So you got Obama spends years forging the Iran nuclear agreement and then Trump comes into power, throws it out. Or you have right now, Trump, uh, Biden is creating a administration that really favors green energy and is kind of against coal, fossil fuel and, you know, shale oil and that kind of stuff. The point being, though, is that 
like if you're playing, if you're the players against this, right? If you're the Iran, you're another country, you're Putin's like, even if we change our administration, the next one goes, Hey, we'd like to collaborate with you. You might go, yeah, that's you. But how do I know in four years from now, some other punk doesn't show up that goes, Hey, I'm the most evil person in the entire world. Uh, so I, I just think I, I'm not, I'm not proposing a solution for this. I, I, I think at best a new administration is going to come in and go, Hey guys, this has been a disaster. This was a mistake of the last administration. I'm going over there right now. I'm going to sit down with Putin. You can end the thing pretty quickly. Uh, but I don't know that Putin will be all that interested in, because it's like the cost of being kicked out of the world economies. You can't trade with people. If in two years from now, Putin's got a good relationship with China and Turkey and they've kind of figured out their economy without, you know, direct trade with the United States of America. And if anything, they further bullied Europe into buying their oil because they failed on their green energy initiative and realized that they were totally reliant. They might actually have more leverage to be like, fuck you, we're not going to be collaborative. We're just going to sell you stuff on our terms and that's the end of it. So, like, if you kind of look at this stuff as a game of who has more leverage, my guess is that our our play here will have failed and that, you know, we're going to we're going to lose a little bit of our grip here. The alternate side of that as a theoretical is that uh, Putin ends up overextending himself uh, with war costs and that, you know, there's so much. I'll just give you the 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 alternate possibility here, um, even though I don't see it this way, that there's so much crime and corruption in that country. His military is actually not as prepared as he thought it was. And they're not having as much success in the area as he had expected because he like money was uh, stolen that he thought was being spent on military equipment. And like their military is just not in the place that they thought it was. And so he ends up not being able to achieve his mission and then a weaker player. But I, I, if I had to guess the odds of that it's like 20%, I just don't think that's the way it's playing out. All right, but we're going to solve all of this by getting the right people in the Mises caucus elected, though, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that could that could work. Well, here's the difference with that, as, a, as I'm just saying as a theoretical, is that we're actually coming at it from a different world philosophy, right? So, like, let's just say you had a Dave Smith, and Dave Smith is president, and he goes over there and flies over to talk to Putin. Uh, Putin could actually look at kind of the philosophy of the libertarian party and go, oh, this is not someone that wants to be my enemy. You know what I mean? Whereas mm -hmm. like every other party's kind of, it's a little bit more gamemanship where ours is a little bit more clear cut of uh, we're not looking to be world empire. Yeah, because Dave's a fascist. So like he's going to go over there and talk to Putin and everything. Oh yeah, and I guess fine. they can get along a little yeah. bit better. Yeah, yeah they can both see, they relate about, common yeah, visions. they have the fascism yeah. and, and you know, I hadn't thought of that. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's an excellent point. Yeah. They, they won't need to be any kind of arguments at all. They both have the same vision for their countries. Uh, so that'll be fine. So uh, speaking of the, the Mises caucus, are things going to get better for the Libertarian Party now? I mean, you happen to be very oh, yeah, close it is. to this whole thing. What's going to be different? Why haven't I joined yet? Tell me why I haven't been inspired to join yet. Because uh, you just uh, you haven't seen the momentum. I actually travel the country and I get to meet with people and see it. And uh, I've seen the way the movement has grown. I, grown. I've seen the enthusiasm for it. And it's, it's tangible. It's like something that I can... I'm not talking about like some six like magical fucking thing I can sense. It's like I'm literally talking to people who are extremely excited and more and more people are showing up to live shows and more and more people won't shut the fuck up about it. Uh, so I get to experience firsthand just how excited people are about this and momentum. Uh, and I find momentum. That's like a that's a that's a tangible asset. Uh, so just based off of the response I'm seeing 
the volunteer effort of all the people that showed up in Reno, the people that like weren't affiliated with the party and now are showing up to boring six hour evening phone calls after their jobs, just so that they can try and push forward with delegate stuff and try and get some of the old party people out of the party. Not to mention all that. I now see what's being tweeted from the, and it's not like things that would just turn you off and go, Oh, this is disgusting. This is some leftist bullshit. Why is the libertarian party tweeting this? Uh, it's the actual ideas that I think if more people were to be exposed to might wake up and then be excited about the fact that someone woke them up. So no, I, I think it is worth, it is worth joining the party. Uh, it is worth, uh, declaring your allegiance to the King and the Meekhawk movement because, uh, we're growing and we're going to make a difference. I will say that I was a member of the party until 2020 and I got so disgusted with all the stuff that I was seeing posted mainly from the Twitter that uh, I agree. I, I had to I agree. I, no one spoke out against Joe in. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't nice about it and I meant it. And uh, I so you and me both. I, I think the way that they acted was uh, offensive. We'll use their terms. <laughs> it offended me because libertarians should not be leftists and speaking about equality and anti-racism and other things that are language tools for the government to exert more control over us and confuse people about what the important issues are. Uh, and now I see a lot more focus in terms of what's important from the LP. And I do think it's worth being involved. Yeah. Okay. You're kind of, you're kind of getting me there. I'm getting real close. Let's see if we can keep <laughs> it, uh, see if we can keep sure. it going. Now, what's the plan? Is there going to be any room for compromise? Is there, is it, is there going to be an incrementalist approach or is this kind of an all or nothing movement? Well, I think it's all or nothing in terms of uh, there are some ideas that are non-negotiable, which is standing for actual libertarianism. Like we're not going to you're not going to see the current libertarian party going, oh, if we want to attract liberals, we better start talking about equality. Or if we want to start attracting liberals, we got to we got to make abortion our singular issue. So in terms of uh, being against the Fed, against the wars, against the covid regime, against the most important things, you're not going to see any compromise whatsoever. We are the libertarian party. And I, yes, I will speak for the under other individuals when it comes to this particular point. We are the libertarian party and we are going to represent libertarian ideals. That's what this movement was about. And that's why we that's why it was taken over where I do already see some compromise. And I do think that is intelligent compromise is I don't think you're going to see the autistic Rothbardian. Hey, we're either anarchy or nothing. I think what you're going to see is decisions being made for what policies bring us closer to freedom and liberty. How do we return more power to states and local governments so that we can have something that's closer to uh, you being able to find an area and live out a very libertarian lifestyle. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see the autistic, hey, uh, if Dave Smith isn't talking about pure anarchy, then what are we doing here? So in that way, it seems to me like a, a compromise was already made towards something a little bit closer to minarchy. Uh, but for my personal philosophies and for my personal viewpoint of, hey, let, let's get some let's get some real positive change done. I, I think that that was probably a positive switch. How tough do you think it would be for a liberty? Let's say Dave gets elected. And uh, he's the president 2024 uh, yeah. after that election. How tough do you think it would be for a libertarian president to actually win re-election 
after all of the, I mean, just think about the insanity that we have right now. We mean that if if Dave were to win, what's the chance of him re-winning? Like, okay, so my fear is that if we get a libertarian president in 2024, that it'll be like the last, it'll be the last time anyone ever, ever considers that ever again. Because when you look at like what they do to Republicans, like they, they, okay, if a Republican wants to grow the government less, then they're like a fascist who doesn't care about poor people and just wants to kill all the children and everything like that. I try to imagine what exactly would happen if a libertarian got in there and started enacting libertarian policies. I so th- I, 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 here's the issue. Government's a, it, it, the current game of government is it's a game of lying. And so what happens is every four to eight years, people go, oh, that guy lied to me. And so they punish the incumbent party and just want to replace it with anything else. Now, as to whether or not that happens on a four or eight year cycle, somewhat depends with how terrible the current administration is and how bad the the person running against them is. But to it to a point, once you're once you're in office, uh, you kind of you kind of have the clock running against you because at some point people realize, oh, it's not magically better. This guy promised me it would be magically better, and it's and it's not magically better, right? So it, it's kind of harder to a point. Now you got the advantage of you don't have to pay for planes like Air Force One is a pretty big advantage. Like if you just look at the cost of running a campaign, uh, you're also able to control other things in terms of like the narrative. So th- there's definitely some advantages to being there. And I think the patience on a current president is more of an eight year cycle than a four year cycle. There's a kicker here, which is how is the economy doing? The economy is a house of cards. Right. And so are you able to bully like the uh, Fed into keeping low interest rates that you have a growth environment? And are you lucky enough that inflation doesn't kick in while you're president? So you know what I mean? There's intangibles. So here are the intangibles of a libertarian president. If a libertarian president were to come in and he were to get rid of the EPA, let's say he were to get rid of a lot of things that are getting in the way of growth. Is, Is three years enough time to see kind of the economic benefits of freedom take root? that people in their lives go, hey, this is way better. So if you had to, for example, let's just say your social security check was not coming to your house anymore. Now, is that the first plan that libertarians would get rid of? Would they phase out social security within their first four years of being in office? I don't think that would be a smart move. If I was a libertarian president, I would go from now on, you don't have to contribute to social security anymore, or hey, we're gonna rob you of less money but don't rely on this for retirement and we're paying out the old people. I, I think you're better off with the phased out approach. Uh, and then also, which would potentially balance our debt is if you can start fork it, whatever, let's not get too technical hmm. into the applications. Cause I'm not that smart for it. Uh, the problem is, is there is tremendous upside to a free, you know, uh, to a free economy and there's growth and innovation that would take hold that if you allowed that to play out under a five or 10 year stretch, the growth that would exist is absolutely phenomenal in a two year stretch of time. Are there endless headlines about the guy who's now making minimum wage before he gets to, you know, before he builds his skill set and ends up in the next job or before you see prices and deflation take root and all of a sudden he might only be making $5 an hour, but he's actually got an opportunity to buy a house in two or three or four years. So my concern for a libertarian president would be, uh, do we stick with what we need for long enough to actually see the upside of it? Uh, and it could be that that takes root really, really quickly, but it could also be that people start to freak out and, you know, all, like 
if you were getting a bunch of free shit and someone takes it from you, like that might be better for you in the long term. The same as like if someone kind of forcing you into a rehab, but like your first couple months in rehab, you might hate it because you're like, I fucking love doing drugs. My lifestyle was awesome. And then three, four years later, you might clean up your act and have a family and go, oh, wow, I really love having this family and this never would have happened. So the point I'm trying to make is that there are some luck variables about how the economy plays out and then how quickly, uh, I guess, the power of freedom actually relates to people and kind of springs economic growth. I like it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, being able to deal with some pain right there first, that's what people are really going to have to realize you'd have to go through is a little bit of pain for a bit. Some of the growth aspects that you're talking about, um, the businesses need a more than like a two or three year time horizon. So I, you'd have to come up with a way of telling them, hey, this, uh, if, yeah, this isn't you, just going to last for a couple of years. This is going to be uh, let's sign a 15 year deal with you, you know, so you can actually make your plans. best. Your best case scenario for libertarian president is actually put it this way. If there's real chaos in this country and people are really hungry, I love this quote and I might mess it up, but change only happens when change is less painful than staying the same. And that's kind of more of like a personal development quote, which I understand. Uh, so if things are so bad in this country, like you can go one of two ways where a dictator stows up and goes, listen, I'll fix it. And then he basically increases socialism and he tells you that he can get you free food, but it's rationed. And so you just kind of end up going down that rabbit hole of, hey, now there's a dictator and everyone talks about, you know, the good old days when there was freedom and, you know, everyone had money. So that's one that's one possibility. Possibility, two is things get bad enough and someone goes, you know, what, let's just get back to freedom. And they can kind of educate people. Hey, what happened here was government got involved in the markets and created bubbles and these bubbles didn't burst and, you know, you guys are feeling the pain of this bursting. So what we need is government to get out of this so we don't continue to create these asset bubbles. Uh, and there might be an opportunity for people to go, you know what? I like freedom. You know, let's vote. Let's vote for freedom. That should actually be uh, Dave's vote for freedom. That that would be a good uh, a good campaign slogan. But that's the education that people need is like government's causing this. Let's return to freedom. And we're already in pain and it's going to take a little bit of while. But if we plant the seeds of freedom you know, you're going to see some real economic growth. Things are going to look really good 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now. That kind of sounds like a little bit of a Ron Paul message right there that, you know, maybe you just need some freedom. There's a reason he was able to fill up stadiums, you know, and have so many people come in to talk to him. And, and Remind that's, me, I said that. Vote for freedom. Yeah, I, re I really hope that that's something that whoever is running for president, if you happen to know a guy, uh, that they try <laughs> and capture some of that uh, a little bit. So uh, we know we talked about at the beginning of the show, you got a show coming up here next weekend, and it's in Bonacqua. Is that correct? I think that's Bon Aqua, it. Tennessee. Hell yeah. All right. Flat so, roads, nice farms. I think, and you I don't said, know. And, and we're going to bring, like, now you said like the bike with like the, what were they? What, what were we calling the them sluts. at the beginning of the, the sluts? Slut yeah, the sluts. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the bike thing is cool, but like they got whole tractors full of them now, you know, with like wagons and there's like buses full down there in downtown Nashville. So, I mean, I'm good with the whole bus of these people. Yeah, I think I like just, it if they're biking the whole way, then they're real tired out and you don't have to uh, you don't have to tire them out with drinks as much once yeah. they show up. Oh, you plus know? They'll drink less alcohol so that you can be yeah. more efficient that way. I got you. Let's have too much energy. It's almost yeah. weird. You really got to like. You really got to go in after having taken a nap because they'll be still be talking at four in the morning. You're like, I don't understand how you have this much energy. 
Plus, it's better for the environment if they bike there. So that's good. Yeah. Also, um, how's the tour been? How the other shows been going? Good, good response. Unbelievable. Good crowds. Unbelievable. I, dude, I can't believe how many people are showing up to the middle of fucking nowhere. Uh, and we're having party. We're, dude, it's so much fun. Listen, I love playing a comedy club. Playing a comedy club is easier. I show up. They got all this shit set up. They got a microphone set up. They got a perfect sound system set up. And they're a lot of fun. When you show up, though, to Summer Porch Store, you bring your own beers, you're smoking weed, you bring your own weed, you're doing heroin, just keep it to the corner, not in front of the kids. But, <laughs> you, like, you show up, you bring your lawn chair, you hang out with other like-minded libertarians. There's no there's no firm close to the venue. Like, it's a fucking party. And uh, surprisingly, people, I did just did a show in Sandpoint, Idaho, like 60 people showed up for it. So I'm, I'm thrilled by the fact that uh, this many people are willing to show up to the middle of nowhere. I'm able to do really offensive comedy that is not really uh, necessarily made for widespread audiences or for randoms that might be showing up to a comedy show. And uh, if you're a libertarian, you can find a little bit of community at these things because a lot of the Meekhawks are showing up and, you know, really being supportive. All right, man, I'm going to put a link to all your stuff in the show notes so everyone can go check all that out. If you're in the area, if you live within like a 10-hour driving distance of Bon Aqua, Fuck Tennessee, yeah. then come hang out. Uh, I'm going to bring a couple friends, and it'll be a good time. I don't drink anymore, unfortunately, but I will watch everyone else uh, drink, and I will think about back when I used to be happier, and it'll be a, <laughs> it'll be a really good time. So, Robbie, thank you so much for your time today, man. Hey, man, thanks for having me on, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Bon Aqua. Uh, my friend's got a fun property. He's got the Alex Jones Theater, and it's going to be a fucking party. That's awesome, dude. Have a good night. Hell yeah.